Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Nightwire by H.F. Arnold, first published in Weird Tales, September 1926. And uh, had you read this story before, Eric? I had not. Hadn't even heard of it. Although I've since found out that that this is considered to be the most famous story ever published in Weird Tales, which is an important uh, magazine in the development of genre fiction. I know that Lovecraft was a fan of it. And um, I think Stephen King was. Um, and maybe John Carpenter. <laughs> it has a lot of fans. Ah, because of the fog. You like the fog. I think I think the fog is wonderful. But... Um, in my subsequent readings and my preparations for this story, I found I found other resonances that I hadn't noticed uh, earlier, and um, I think that I think that it's a there's something about this story by H.F. Uh, Arnold may not even been a real person; it might be a pseudonym. We don't know much about H.F. Arnold. He wrote three stories that were published under that name. Um, we have a, a year of birth and a year of death. Um, but we don't really have much else about him or maybe it's not even a him, but probably a him. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, yet uh, I knew that this was a good story, but I, I didn't know what made it so good until I, I did do some deep reading on it. And, um, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. I, I think it's a marvelous story in, uh, in many ways, although, uh, we need to talk about the ending, but before we get to the ending, let's let's make sure we have a sense of the whole. The story, The Nightwire, uh, could refer to a number of things, but the story begins, quote, New York, September 30, CP, Flash. Ambassador Hollywell died here today. The end came suddenly as the ambassador was alone in his study, dot, 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 end quote. There's something ungodly about these Nightwire jobs. So the story begins, and right away we know that the night wire must refer to the wire service. Mm -hmm. And when we think about that, uh, normal bylines uh, that we're used to seeing could say UPI or AP or um, uh, AFP, Agent France Presse. Um, uh, so this is, I don't know consolidated press. I mean, it's a made-up wire surface. New right. York, September 30th, CP, Flash. And then we get something just to let us know that it's about death. That's what happens in the night. And, you know, the thing is that uh, here in 1926, telegrams are expensive. If you get a telegram, the odds are really low that it's good news. And if you get a telegram at night, it's even lower that it's good news. So the night wire is about the bad news coming. And in that very first sentence after death on the wire is established, whoever is speaking says there is something ungodly about these night wire jobs. So what we now have is a story that already has God, but the anti-God in it. And it's a story told by the fellow who is the head of the station in which the wire service happens. And at this moment that is being narrated, 
there's only one fellow receiving uh, information coming in. Uh, he's a fellow uh, Joe Morgan, J- Joe, Jim Morgan, John, Morgan. John Morgan. Thank you. Um, who is one of the very, very, very few who are capable of being what's called a double man. He can listen to two different telegraphs coming in, telegraph messages, sounders, the machines are called. And with each hand, he can peck out the letters as he hears them on separate typewriters so that he becomes a sort of mechanical wizard the word being used and can mm-hmm. type out two different stories. Usually at night, we're told only one wire is necessary. But this night, a second wire gets opened up and we get messages from a place called Zedico. Uh, it's like Mexico inside out, but with a mm-hmm. uh, right. But with a B in there in the, in the mix. Um, and our narrator says he's interested because he's never heard of such a place. And at the end, he tells us you can't find such a place on the atlas. But then we get his observations of Morgan interspersed with more and more of these news flashes. Um, It's like the War of the Worlds broadcast. We're Mm -hmm. using the format to establish veracity. Um, And the whole story tries to establish veracity. Uh, In fact, the narrator says that he was the head of the station in a seacoast city, uh, the name of which doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that he's not willing to tell you the name creates suspense. The, it also makes it hard to deny the truth of this because you can't say, well, the, that city never had this happen. Um, it's very clever plays for truthfulness. But what in fact is reported is something that could not, we believe, be truthful. That is, bit by bit, a fog grows in this distant city to which they are connected by wire, uh, which is the story is being tapped out by the left or sinister hand of Morgan. Um, and the fog, we finally, we were told, gets darker and darker, so much so that it's as if there were no street lights there. Uh, it goes on and it turns out that a rector has run away from the church to say that he saw it start with some subterranean wind coming out of the graveyard. Uh, and then within the thickening blackness, maybe there are these forms. It goes on and on and on until eventually um, it turns out that Morgan is dead. And there are no more dispatches. And the story is apparently over. Which is why, despite the fact that this is an incredibly famous story, presumably for its atmospherics, um, there are people who complain that it really doesn't have a very good ending. Um, Uh Yeah, people do complain about that. I disagree. And I thought you would. So if that seems like a a reasonable first pass at how the story works, how do you read it and how do you see the ending, Jesse? Uh, Yeah, I, I, I can see why people think that the ending's not good. Because um, when I first uh, when I first got started getting into stories of this kind, the weird tales sort of stories, it was it was not through weird tales directly. It was through uh, comics, and there was a kind of story that they would have in you know the Marvel you know tales of a chilling nighter you know the House of Mystery sort of comics where they would have a, a great cover premise and that would make you buy the comic. And one of them I distinctly remember was a boxing story that had 
uh, a man boxing another man and and the you know the lines of dialogue the word balloons are right on the cover telling you exactly what the premise of the story was and it's like the trainer says he can't be beat give up and the <laughs> boxer says um, I must I must win for my wife and child or something and and then the the trainer uh, says but he's inhuman and then uh, the caption would say indeed he had been dead for six rounds right <laughs> and he's like ooh that's going to be a good story right fighting a man who's already dead you can't beat him um and that's what the how this ends right is that the uh, john morgan has been dead for hours how has he been typing out these so um one of the websites that has a, a little bit about this story is uh TV Tropes. TV Tropes is a great website for all sorts of things besides TV as well. You know, sort of connecting up all the different kinds of stories together and seeing where things came from. And they said uh, about this one, our zombies are different. <laughs> In that uh, he's a zombie. And I don't think that that's the charitable way of reading this story. And one of the things that I, I noticed in my final reading before our discussion today was that there's a clue uh, that I guess there's actually clues all along, in fact, uh, that he's been dead for a while. It's not obviously clear because he's busy tapping away. But one of the things that comes up is um, these uh, dispatches are signed sometimes if uh, they don't get cut off or whatever. And on the very first page of our copy, oh, sorry, the second page of our copy, there's uh, a line going like this. At 7 p.m., the fog had increased noticeably. All lights were now invisible, and the town was shrouded in pitch darkness. Quote, as a peculiarity of the phenomenon, the fog is accompanied by a sickly odor, comparable to nothing yet experienced here. And then below that, in customary press fashion, was the hour, 327, and the initials of the operator, J.M., um, I didn't notice that the first time. JM is the initials of the operator who's receiving the message. It's also the initials of the operator sending the message. Right. Isn't that interesting? Well, indeed, that's what I presume when I said he was a wizard and a mechanical automatic wizard, which functioned marvelously, but without imagination. That's exactly. Jim. That's Jim's view. But it may well be that that John Morgan is a wizard, that he created the town of Zebico, that he is the one who brought forth the fog and then his own creation got beyond him, sort of like the sorcerer's apprentice. Um, we're told that that John Morgan is uh, is 40 years old. Uh, which is the canonical number of years for death and rebirth in the Bible. It's the number of years uh, uh, that the Hebrews spend in the wilderness after they have they leave Israel. It's the number of days that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. It's the number of days that Noah is, is tossing on the waves through the flood. Forty is a time of radical change, death mm -hmm. and rebirth. And John Morgan is the wizard who can do this. But that's why I pointed out in my summary, he's doing it with his left hand. He's mm -hmm. ungodly. He is sinister. He is the giver and the receiver. 
of this this incredible fog. Or, Since we're talking about numbers, I'll, I'll tell you the one I always clue on to. I, I didn't clue on to the 40 until you pointed it out, but I love that. Um, the number I always gl- glom onto is three. And uh, when I'm showing this to my students, I always start with Macbeth and that opening scene with the witches. Uh, we, when will we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain, right? Yep. Um, here, um, uh, three is good, but I also point out that three times three, or three, three threes is even better. Because it's it's how the three witches operate in Macbeth, and here we have the same thing. On the second page, on the night of the sixteenth, he complained of feeling tired. <laughs> it was the first time and last time I ever heard him say a word about himself, and I had known him for three years. It was just three o'clock, and we were dot dot dot. And then, as he starts the writing, he he pulls out the copies of what's being written. And it says, every 10 minutes or so, I would walk over and take a pile of, of copy that had stacked up neatly beside the typewriter as the messages were printed out in triplicate. Right. <laughs> so the, the invocation has begun, right? At this point, John is still alive. By the end of the story, he's dead. John Morgan. And as you're, you're, you're saying, he's a wizard. Uh, it, that's right in there. He's created the story like the wizard is printed has got out of control i don't think that that's actually what's happening i don't think that he is um because it says he's a sober man right he's a serious and sober man um hard working right um a quiet man too he he'd never complained before about his uh you know uh, his hard job at being a night man on the nightwire um but he started feeling that the air was close he says, should I open the window? He says, no. Um, in fact, I, I, my final interpretation as to what what two things are happening, my first reading of the story, I, I, I thought, Zebico, cool, where is it? How is it attached? You know, each city has these wires. They're physically attached. It's like someone, someone on the internet needs your help, right? How, how where, where? They must be connected to the internet. How are they connected? This city, Zebico, is somehow connected to all the other cities mentioned in the story, London and New York and uh, Vancouver and all the all the places that are mentioned, they're all connected in a primitive sort of internet that they had back then. But what's also interesting is that when they go to check on this story, uh, Chicago doesn't know anything about it. There is no Zebico uh, information coming in on the second wire. It's not just and, that Chicago doesn't know about Zebico. Chicago says they hadn't opened a second wire. Right. So this second wire that John Morgan is transcribing from it seems not to have been connected to the Internet, as you put it, at all. The question then is, what is it connected to? Mm-hmm. Even before the stories come in, it's already three o'clock. I like your, your uh, focus on three. Mm-hmm. and. John Morgan looks up and says, Jim, does it feel close in here to you? Why no, John, I answered, but I'll open a window of you if you like. Never mind. I reckon I'm just a little tired. Something is troubling him, John Morgan. Mm-hmm. But he is unwilling to open the window. If they were closer to that fog, keeping the window closed would be a way to protect themselves. 
That's right. And he does, uh, the manager does go out and look out the window at the end of the story and look down at the, and almost sees the fog there, right? Um, Which may mean that he's projecting. Right. Three o'clock in the morning is the time that one associates with the so-called dark night of the soul. Absolutely. And I think the reason that it's three o'clock has to do with the New Testament, in which Jesus says to uh, to Peter, "You will um, you will deny me three times ere the cock crows." Yep. Um, so this three o'clock is a time of apostasy. It's a time when this fellow, who's called a double man, um, is functioning. And his duality is, in fact, so not is not going to be a benefit to him as a, a sounder operator, but he will be less sound himself because his duality will lead to his own demise. I love that. <laughs> nice joke. Um, <laughs> I also uh, my final reading on this uh, as to what what besides being an actual city out there somewhere, maybe in another dimension is that it's actually, this is the messages coming from within. This is the message from within uh, John Morgan himself. I mean, we've got that signature as well. Yes. But his body is dying. He's receiving the messages as if the cells of his body are the city. And this fog is creeping up. And when the fog is reflected in the, the lights in the fog are turn out to be reflected from above the horror of death. Uh, I, when I was reading this with my students, I started, you know, we make notes as we go and I started making stars and suddenly on the second to last page, it just turns into a, a line of stars all the way down as I go because it's like, Oh, Oh, bedlam. People are running to and fro, screaming in despair. A vast bedlam of sound flies up to my window. And above all is the immense whistling of unseen, unfelt winds. This is the operator uh, on the other end of the wire in Zebico, the city that doesn't exist, um, calling out that last, you know, the horrible Lovecraftian style. I, I'm writing this under an immense amount of pressure. Something at the door, I'm going to die. And then the last line is scribbled away, right? This is that same sort of feeling. But the word bedlam is after the hospital in in London. Right. And that hospital is not called bedlam legitimately. That's the colloquial term for it. The actual name is Bethlehem yep. Hospital, right? Then we go on. So the fog saying, is, uh, excuse me, are you suggesting that the colors there, just as Bedlam is a, is a perversion of Bethlehem, the colors that are coming down in this story are a perversion of the Annunciation, the, the, the light that comes down to... Light, yes, absolutely. And that's where the stars begin again. The fog is not simply vapor, it lives. By the sides of each moaning and weeping human is a companion figure, an aura of strange and very colored hues. What is that? How the shapes cling, how each to each living thing, each cell is my thinking in this body. The men and women are down, flat on their faces. The fog figures caress them lovingly. They are kneeling beside them. They are, but I dare not tell it. (laughs) 
The prone and writhing bodies have been stripped of their clothing. They are being consumed piecemeal. This is shocking compared to the caressing lovingly a moment before. A merciful wall of hot, steamy vapor has swept over the whole scene. I can see no more. I think we need to make it be explicit here. This is cannibalism. Absolutely. This is zombies eating your brains out. I mean, I, this is, you know, our zombies are different. I understand why people would make this com- this comparison if those uh, those spectral beings are uh, those who have been released from the graveyard, from the churchyard. Um, then, yeah, this is cannibalism. It's people people killing each other, people in one state killing people in another state. This is what happens when all of civilization breaks apart, when the moral commandments are no more. This story that you're just reading from, that particular dispatch, is, of course, um, given by the JM, who is the operator in Zebico. Mm-hmm. And it begins, he's able to describe all of this because it says, from my instrument, I can gaze down on the city beneath me from the position of this room on the 13th floor. Exactly. Right. Now, that's not just superstition. Right. That 13th floor represents the the extra disciple. This is Judas's number. This mm-hmm. is the number of betrayal. Um, and that's what human beings will do to each other if they are somehow terribly released. Uh, what we want is for people not to be double. We want them to be integrated. We want them to be whole. We want them to be centered. Uh, but they're not, in part because the lives of people through this new technology are distributed. I would like to suggest that the opening passage where we're told, well, you know, we're connected. We can hear the echoes of the life. And then they're named a number of cities, Singapore, London, and so on, all of which, for the beginning of the story, are places where people still speak English. Uh, In the second list of stories uh, of places to which the wire is connected, Paris is thrown in. Until you get to Paris, what this story is positioning Jim, the, the office manager, as, as as one node in an interconnected, you use the word so well, internet, mm-hmm. in which the reality of human intercourse is not those who are just next to you. I mean, he'd been working with John Morgan all this time and hardly knew him, but rather with people all spread across the globe. Those, those connections are vivid, they are electronic, they are mechanically mediated, they seem miraculous, they are mechanical wizards, but they do not, in fact, sustain human life. This story is, of course, a horror story, Yeah. but it's also a science fiction critique of a situation which will not exist visibly in our world for 70 years after its publication. It's really mm-hmm. extraordinary. I, I I love I love this uh, the buildup. It's it is perfectly timed. It starts off slowly. It starts it starts with as you point out. And I've seen some narrators, uh, some publications also drop that opening line uh, instead of starting with the New York September thirtieth. Right. It starts with there's something ungodly. 
Uh, and the thing is, is why is that there, that little introduction? Ambassador Hollywell died here today. The end came suddenly as the ambassador was alone in his study. What killed him? He's alone in his study. Well, one of the things that <laughs> happens when you're on the high office building and late at night in the witching hour of three o'clock in the morning, the time when you can't sleep and you want to sleep, you jump out the window. <laughs> um, when you say, don't open that window, even though it's close in here. Um, and then when when Jim, I, uh, the manager, looks out the window, um, he sees what he almost thinks of as that fog. And it's reflected um, by that, the closing lines right, of, this, of the final message, which is, I can see the, how does it go? I can see the streets again. Right? I can see the streets, why they are filled with people. The lights, these are the lights from above that are coming down. The lights are coming closer. They are all around me. I am enveloped. I. He looks out the window and he turns that lampshade back. The one that, that uh, John had turned away from his own eyes. Right, the visor shade. That's right. He turned them to the, the machines. It, it turns the lampshade back, throwing it light squarely in the face of the operator. And filled with a sudden foreboding, he doesn't quite realize that the man is not able to respond. He says, Morgan, Morgan, wake up. Morgan, meaning morning, of course. Wake up. It isn't true. Someone has been ho hoaxing us. Who is the someone? I don't think it is a hoax. In my eagerness, I grasped him by the shoulder. His body was quite cold. Morgan had been dead for hours. Could it be that his sensitized brain and automatic fingers had continued to record impressions even after the end? I think that what you also have in this story, besides a zombie story and a horror story and all the other things, it's a life-after-death story or life on the brink of death, right? That John Morgan's Zebico was within not just in the way that a, a writer takes a pen and starts writing a story and it comes out. And wow, I didn't know that I had that story with me, within me. But it's within in the sense that he's experiencing the death of the body. Um, he's been dead for hours, but the reportation on what has been the process of, of dying. It starts with horror, right? A fog coming out of the graveyard and enveloping all the parts and then it turns to beauty there's nothing harmful in the lights they radiate force and friendliness almost cheeriness by their very strength they hurt a supplemental way of looking at what you're talking about uh, that is, i say supplemental because i i don't in any mean by any means mean to uh stand against what you've just said is that morgan has been killed by his utter adoption of the technology in which he is able to do something that no real human being could do. Mm -hmm. I, I can't carry on two, two conversations literally simultaneously. That is, I can't be speaking, I can't be writing m messages to you. Um, I can't be speaking to you while I'm writing messages at the very same moment to somebody who is sitting uh, to the side of me. Um, 
I could I could quickly go back and forth between them, but I can't do them simultaneously. But that's right. what he does. You know, we have Jacques Ellul's famous book from 1966, which is 40 years after this book, this story was published, called The Technological Man, La Technique in French, um, in which he makes uh, the sort of classical statement, the argument that we become our machines. Uh, there's that famous line that, you know, the so-and-so made the railroads run on time, often uh, attributed to uh, a discussion of Mussolini. Um, he made the railroads run on time. But I think, in fact, it is more important to be able to recognize that the railroads made us run on time. Mm. Right. Nobody ever had a heart attack running for the 815 from Greenwich, Connecticut, until there was an 815 from Greenwich, Connecticut. The, the railroads made us line up on the platform in order to get into the trains. Um, yes, the railroad tra is to serve us, but we become like the railroad. And what we have with John Morgan, one of only three double men that Jim has ever encountered, is someone who is so taken up with what you're calling the Internet. And in 1926, it certainly is an information network, the the best information network in the world. In 1926, he is someone who lives there. The alternative to living there, which is to say to be dead as a human being, is to physically come together. And so one of the dispatches that, that he writes from Zebico before, he, maybe after he's given up the ghost, but before the story <laughs> ends, the residents of the city, the one in which the fog is being reported, Zebico, residents of the city have left their homes and gathered in the local church where the priests are holding services of prayer. This not only brings us back to the notion of the godly as opposed to the ungodly, which is raised in the beginning of the story, but also that to reach the godly, to really fulfill as much as possible our humanity, we need to do it communally. This idea we see again, for instance, in the film The Day the Earth Stood Still, where, mm -hmm. where people are gathering around the radio. They're going to, uh, to uh, church services in order to figure out what they should do now that they realize that there are powers greater than them and they have to, uh, they have to somehow survive. To survive as humans means, the story suggests, as does The Day the Earth Stood Still, to come together, to be in a group, to be able to, to share the same air, to be able to touch each other's flesh. And that's exactly what becomes unnecessary when you are connected only by the night wire. John Morgan is not unimaginative the way Jim says he is. Uh, he may, in fact, have conjured all of this up out of his own mind. And there may never have been a second wire. And he may have just been telling metaphorically the story of his own dissolution, his loss of humanity. But whether he was imaginative or not in the ways that Jim could understand he is, John Morgan, an early victim of the internetization <laughs> of Homo sapiens. But of course, there's always more to say. <laughs>